Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Well, we have reached the final episode in our long-running series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. In this episode, he's going to be discussing the embalming of Joseph, and at the end, after the prayer, stay tuned for a few extra thoughts on the Joseph narrative and what the embalming means. It's really been a joy to get this long-running project out there to you, and I know many of you have written in and called in and told us how blessed you've been by it. So it's been a real honor and fun and exciting project to get this series out here to you. As always, do check out those show notes. We have a link there to our YouTube channel, especially we'd love for you to subscribe there. We are in the midst right now of a series going through the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart that we think you'll really enjoy. And with that, we want to thank you, as always, for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the embalming of Joseph to conclude our series on the life of Jacob. All right, we have two final stories here in Genesis 50, and the first one is the final reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, and then the last one will be the embalming of Joseph. Let's read verses 15 to 21. I'm going to read from Fox. If you're following Fox, you'll see I make a few changes because I think his translation is not as helpful as it might be in a couple of places. So starting in Genesis 50, verse 15, and reading from the Fox translation, When Yosef's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Yosef tries to eliminate us and returns, yes, returns to us for all the evil that we caused him? So they dispatched a message to Joseph. And Fox has got that wrong. They didn't go and speak to him. They dispatched a message to Joseph saying, Your father commanded before his death saying, Thus say to Joseph. Boy, there's a misprint right there in the book. Say thus to Joseph. Pray, forgive your brother's offense and their sin that they caused you evil. Now pray, forgive the offense of the servants of your father's God. And Joseph wept when their words came to him. That's the way that should read. And his brothers themselves also came, and they flung themselves down before him, and they said, Behold us, your slaves. And Yosef said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Now you, you planned evil against me, but God planned it over for good, in order to do this very day, to keep many people alive. So now do not be afraid. I myself will sustain you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke to their hearts. And I wanted to fix that translation a bit because the language of good and evil, of life and death, of being in God's place, all takes us back to Genesis 3. And Genesis is ending here where it began and showing us the gospel. And so we need to get the translation as close to Genesis 3 as we can, especially when exactly the same words are used in a context that is almost immediately the same. So let's look at it. Verse 15, we'll just go through this in order. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. Well, my goodness, they'd seen that sometime before. 
80 days or 90 days before. Obviously, the word see here means to discern, to judge, just as it does in Genesis chapter 1. We're back at the beginning. God saw what he had made, and it was good. God saw what he had made, and it was good. Eve saw the fruit was good for food, and so she ate it. Seeing is judging and discerning. And to judge the meaning of something is to see it, if you see what I mean. And his brothers assessed the meaning of the fact that their father was dead. And they fear something that Jacob had a very good reason to fear years before. Remember what Esau said? Esau said, when my father's dead, I will kill Jacob. And now the same motif is here. The father's dead, the restraint is off. What if Joseph wants to eliminate us? Whatever your Bible has there, the better translation is that Joseph seeks to eliminate us. It's actually exactly the same language as Esau used in Genesis 27:41. I'll read it to you. Fox says, now Esau held a grudge, but really Esau sought to eliminate Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, let the days of the morning for my father draw near, and then I will kill Jacob my brother. So this business it means to seek to eliminate And the brothers had sought to eliminate Joseph, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 49, 23, 22-23. Young wild-ass Joseph, young wild-ass along a spring, donkeys along a wall. Bitterly, they shot at him. The archers tried to eliminate him. Reference back to the brothers' attack on Joseph. So, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, they're still worried. It could still happen, and it can happen because the father's dead. And these are the only places in Genesis that this word occurs. So we are definitely supposed to understand the parallels here. I mean, it's not the idea of holding a grudge or anything else. It's more serious. Is he going to wipe us out? And what if he returns on us? Fox has he. What if he repays us? Repaying, yes, repays us. Well, the verb is double, and of course that's for emphasis, but it's really the word return, and it's the same word in verse 14. Joseph returned to Egypt. And so there's a thematic tie here between these two things. Joseph returns to Egypt, and now Joseph is going to return on us what we've done to him. A narrative link. And then he says, what if he pays us back for all the evil that we called him? This is the word ra in Hebrew, which means evil. And it's the same word as in Genesis 3 and 2, knowledge of good and evil. And we saw back when we looked at Genesis 37 eons ago that there are seven days in Genesis 37 thematically, and on the seventh day the brothers attack Joseph, that their attack on Joseph, who had the special robe, is equivalent to seizing the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Joseph was the one who was supposed to be protected. He was special to his father. He was set apart by the robe, and they attacked him, and we explored those parallels there at that time. And so we're starting to be reminded of it here. The punishment for doing that is death. The punishment in the garden was death. Seize God's fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the punishment is death. And if you take the fruit off the tree, eye for eye, what do you have to do to make it right? Well, you have to hang some other fruit on the tree, and of course that goes straight to the cross, as Christian hymnologists, hymn writers have always understood. Jesus hangs on the tree 
to replace what Adam stole off the tree, taking the death that Adam deserved for doing it. Eve did it, but Adam put her up to it, as you know. So we're beginning to be reminded of that theme by just the use of the word evil and the reference back to the event which thematically has already tied us back to the fall. Because Genesis wants to work out in a preliminary way the fall of man and show salvation. And we'll see it here. Verse 16, they dispatched a message to Joseph. Didn't say they charged Joseph. They haven't shown up yet. They're going to show up right after the message comes. But first they send a message to him. And then they say, your father commanded us before his death, saying, blah, blah, blah. And then they say, forgive the offense of the servants of your father's God. Of course, throughout the preceding passage, as we saw last time, Joseph is burying his father. Constantly it's his father that's being buried. My father's being buried. doesn't call Jacob, the father of the other sons. And perhaps there is some thought that still, even at this point, there is not complete father-son relationship anymore between Jacob and his sons. He's primarily Joseph's father. But here they say it, and the commentators say, well, this is a sign of humility. This is to try to cozy up to Joseph. They put a psychological meaning on it. But I think it's also a confession that Joseph is most like Jacob. Joseph is the one who is more like Jacob than the other sons. And that's why Jacob is particularly his father. And they want to establish that link. And they say, your father's God. This creates kind of a chain. They have to go to Joseph. Joseph is linked to Jacob, and Jacob is linked to God. There's an avenue here back to God. And if they're going to be forgiven that avenue has to be restored. Well, the commentators all raise this question. Is this a lie? We don't have anything previously in the text about Jacob saying this. So they make it up. Is that why Joseph weeps? Because they lied to him? They're so afraid of him that they make up this lie that Jacob said they should forgive him. And Joseph weeps when he sees the extremity of their fear as shown in their lie. Well, I don't think there's any real good reason to say that. We've already seen this phenomenon in the narrative a couple of times before. I'll just remind you very quickly of one of them. Please don't try to turn here. I'm just trying to remind you that the same kind of thing has happened. In chapter 43, when Jacob wants to send the brothers down to Egypt a second time, Judah says, the man warned us. He said, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. You can't come back unless your brother is with you. Well, that's not actually found in the preceding narrative. He says, bring your brother back to me, and that's it. He doesn't say, you will not see my face again unless your brother's with you. And there's several other things that get reported when they come back to Jacob that are not explicitly said in their encounter with Joseph. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means the Bible tells us things at certain places and not at others. It's not necessary for us to have a scene where Jacob says this and then the brothers repeat it. Sometimes we have that, sometimes we don't. But even if these particular words were not spoken, I think that Jacob's blessing on his sons shows the meaning of it. Joseph should not be holding an offense against the brothers if they have been blessed by Jacob. So whether Jacob actually said these words or words to this effect 
or whether the brothers are simply just drawing out the implications of the fact that Jacob had blessed the sons. doesn't make any difference. I don't think they're lying. I don't think there's any need to psychologize the text that way. They send to Joseph and they say, Your father commanded us to go to you and ask your forgiveness. And you can see that as having happened explicitly or by implication, but I don't think there's any reason to see it as a lie. But then I think there's something else here too. The emphasis on Jacob's death. Could have said, your father commanded, but it's linked to his death. And it's Jacob's death that is transitioned between the conflict and the full reconciliation. This has happened before. Who died so that Joseph could get out of prison? Remember, we looked at the chronology. It was buried in the text. Joseph is in prison in Egypt, and then he comes out of prison. Someone died while he was in prison during those three years, right before he left, right before he stood before Pharaoh. Isaac died. There are hidden in Genesis numerous pictures that the death of the patriarch, the death of God's messianic servant, provides release and forgiveness for others. And that's right here by implication. Jacob's death is linked to their life. Jacob, in a sense, substitutes for them. And we saw last time that Jacob dies and he ascends. He goes up into the promised land and that ascension is the main theme there. And now he's an intercessor, which is just what happens with Jesus. Jesus dies, he ascends, now he intercedes for forgiveness for us. And Jacob has left behind this intercession for forgiveness. And these things are no accident. We're supposed to understand this is how God is working out salvation as the passage makes plain. And Jacob is the one who does this. Jacob, the perfect man. The man who wrestles with God and prevails. Persuades God in his prayer wrestling. And now his death provides reconciliation. He ascends. And in his ascension, he leaves behind forgiveness, intercession for the sons. Jesus says the same kind of thing in Luke 22:32. He says, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your strength may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When Jesus ascends, when he dies after he's resurrected, there will be forgiveness for Peter, and then Peter is supposed to strengthen his brothers. Well, Jacob is now the intercessor, and Jacob is going to bring this about even beyond the grave. And the words here pile up. We get so used to reading words for sin and crime and all that in the Bible that we don't always pay attention to it, but there's a bunch of it here. It talks about the evil that we caused him in verse 15. It talks about their offense or crime and their sin, and their offense comes up again. This is by far the fullest confession that the brothers have ever made. There's been reconciliation in the past, but now there's total and complete reconciliation between them. And Joseph again weeps when he hears this, and this is, as we've said before, there's psychological barriers that come down that that points to, and there's even some slight baptismal implications in weeping. Weeping cleanses, and we've looked at that before too. So the ideas of forgiveness and reconciliation are strongly here. And then they come to him. The brothers also came. 
Now they show up. Probably right on the heels of the message. It's in the message first to prepare the way, and then they come. And they flung themselves down before him. Before they bowed to him, now they fall down before him. Of course, this is all climatically fulfilling those prophecies right at the beginning of the story about how they would fall before him, and they do once again. And they subordinate themselves to him as the avenue of forgiveness. They want to be forgiven, and it's not just would you please forgive me that I wronged you, but this is all connected up to God and being reconciled to God. And Joseph is the way through which that will happen. Then in verses 19 to 20, we have all this very strong language that points us back to Genesis 3 and to the fall of man. It's being undone here. Not in the full sense that Jesus does, but in enough of a sense to where this is the climax of the gospel as we find it in Genesis. Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Well, Adam wanted to be in the place of God. Joseph says, I am not in the place of God. Joseph is rejecting Adam's sin here. Joseph is not trying to put himself in the place of God, only in the place of a servant of God. Only God judges life and death. It says, you planned evil, but God planned good. You can't miss the allusion to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What they did to Joseph was, as we've seen, the attack on the forbidden fruit. They violated the conditions of good and evil. But God planned to work evil out of good and life out of death. God planned for good in order to do this day, the day of the Lord. The first day of the Lord was in Genesis 3, when God comes in the day to Adam and Eve, go back and read that. It says he came in the cool of the day. Well, really, it's the spirit of the day there, Ruach. This is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and here's another day. Only it's not a day of death, but a day of life to keep many people alive. God has worked out a way to bring life out of the curse of death. And the language here is deliberate to push us back to the fact that when Adam tried to put himself in the place of God, and he committed evil by taking prematurely of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the result was a curse of death on that day. It's all changed here. God has worked out a plan to bring life out of death and good out of evil. And in the previous stories in Genesis, this has always been a promise. God comes to Abraham and makes a promise to him. He makes a promise to Isaac. He makes a promise to Jacob. Everything is promised, or in the future... These things will happen. Certain things happen. But we certainly haven't arrived at all the future that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we have definitely arrived at one future, which is typologically very important. The entire world is being converted. The entire world is being fed bread and wine by a messianic figure. And you can hardly fail to see the New Testament typology here. And so we aren't surprised to see that the language here indicates someone has died that others might live. God has worked life out of death. That's been a theme throughout this entire story, life versus death. And now God has completely worked out life out of death. He has overcome evil with good. Man is no longer trying to play God and so forth. So we don't want to miss these things because they're important. They're important way that Genesis ends by showing us God's salvation of sinful humanity. But it's not just that you may live. 
He doesn't say God planned it for good in order to this very day keep you alive. He says many people alive, and you can't avoid seeing that the Egyptians are included here. The Egyptians, and of course all the world, it says, came to Joseph to get bread. And so whatever that means, the extent of that world includes salvation to the Gentiles, which of course was the whole purpose all along. God called Abraham not to be saved, but to minister salvation to the Gentiles. That was always the purpose of Israel and always God's concern. So once again, we're back to the world. Humanity is saved. Many people, not in the fullness of the New Testament, but typologically and quite really, at this time, there's some paradise on earth now. For the first time. I mean, Genesis is a story of one disaster after another until we get here. And now, starting with Abraham and working it through, God has worked things back up to this really wonderful picture here of a converted Pharaoh and a converted Pharaoh's household and converted Egyptians and converted Israelites living in Goshen. What was Goshen like? It was the best part of Egypt. And what is Egypt like? Genesis 13.10. The area of the circle of the Jordan was like the land of Egypt and like the Garden of Eden. But when you're in Egypt, you're back in the Garden of Eden. You're best part of Egypt. You're in the best part of the Garden of Eden. It's all pictures of salvation. And it's interesting to look at the progression here. The Egyptians are the only ones who don't suffer in this narrative. Some suffer for others. The son has suffered. In this story, that's Joseph. The father has suffered. In this story, that's Jacob. And don't think the Father didn't suffer when Jesus was on the cross. He didn't suffer for our sins, but it's no fun to see your son die. The church suffered. These brothers suffered. They endured a lot of suffering. It was their own fault. The Egyptians are the only ones who don't suffer. The Egyptians were sinners too. Salvation comes to them. They go under the famine, but they don't suffer under it because Joseph took care of them. And you have here the notion that some suffer for others. And it's a privilege. It's the whole privilege of Israel to suffer for the life of the world. Always was. The gospel salvation plan where Jesus suffers for us and we die and suffer for others to bring about salvation to the whole world progressively in history, it's all here in a capsule. Genesis is not ending on a note of despair, but a very real manifestation of the glories of the kingdom of God here at the end, forgiveness, restoration, victory, although it's not the end of the story, of course, as is made plain by the entire context. Well, verse 21, it says, Don't be afraid. I will sustain you and your little ones. He comforted them and spoke to their hearts. The heart versus fear thing is kind of obvious, I hope. You know, fear is removed when the heart is spoken to. Perfect love drives out fear. I've got down here. And people are afraid, but if God speaks to you in your heart, you're not afraid. And this is reconciliation at its fullness, heart to heart. We haven't had heart to heart language before. When the brothers are reconciled to Joseph earlier, it's great, but it's not this much. This is also, I think, true in our relationship with Jesus. I mean, we get reconciled to Jesus at our baptism. But at various points in our lives, that has to deepen. And it's deepening here. They're reconciled to Joseph by degrees. And this is the fullness of the degrees. 
and the alienation is as far removed as two hearts together. And again, really the only other reference to hearts in this narrative is back in 42.28 when it says the first time they met Joseph and Joseph sent their silver back with them, it says their hearts failed them when they found the silver in their sacks. Their hearts died. And now their hearts come back to life again. And one other passage in Genesis that is relevant to show reconciliation here is that after Hamor had seduced Dinah and taken advantage of her, then he repents of that. And in Genesis 34.3 it says Hamor's, or Shechem rather, Shechem's emotions clung to Dinah, Jacob's daughter. He loved the girl and he spoke to the heart of the girl. So once we see Joseph speaking to their hearts and what a good thing that is, we can carry this back one more time to Shechem speaking to the heart of Dinah. And Shechem is converted and the massacre of him and his people is the huge sin. And we just see how much greater that sin is when we see the parallel between him and his behavior and Joseph's behavior. Of course, he wasn't like Joseph in certain respects, but his repentance and his love are used the same language as Joseph's love for his brothers here. And we don't want to miss that. So this reconciliation here, of course, is between Joseph and his brothers, but the language that's piled up is designed to show us that God is working out reconciliation between him and us. And this is how it's going to happen. You decode the deep structure here, And this is how God has worked out salvation in history. Jesus comes. And though he was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be seized. He didn't do what Adam did and try to make himself God. He came in the image of God like a man. He did not try to seize equality with God. Rather, he was willing to be a servant just like Joseph. And he was willing to undergo death like Joseph. And what was the effect of that? Well, the effect of it is that good comes out of evil, death is transformed into life, God is restored as God, and God's people are restored to one another and to Him. All that has happened. The last days of Joseph, verses 22 to 26. This section has a chiastic structure. I'll read it, and you can look at the little chiasm here and follow it. Verses 22 to 26. So Yosef stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Yosef lived 110 years. And Yosef saw from Ephraim's sons to the third generation, and also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Yosef's knees. And Yosef said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will take account, yes, take account of you, and he will bring you up from this land, to the land about which he swore to Abraham to Yitzchak and to Yaakov. And Yosef had the sons of Israel swear, saying, When God takes account, yes, account of you, Bring up my bones from here. And Yosef died a hundred and ten years old. And they embalmed him and put him in an ark in Egypt. Actually, you could make that chiasm even fuller. Verses 24 and 25. We go from Joseph's knees here to, he says, God will take account to the land which he swore. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear when God takes account. And then he says, bring my bones, bones being equivalent to knees. So there's a fairly full chiastic structure here in this very last 
paragraph. Well, a couple of things we can say. Verses number 110, you've got this in your notes about three times already, but I'll give it to you one last time. Joseph is a new Adam, and Joseph, we haven't looked at that before, and of course Joseph is the successor and climax of the patriarchs, and scholars have pointed this out. We certainly believe that these people actually lived these years, but in the providence of God, the years that they lived have symbolic meaning, and there's no doubt about it. Adam lives 30 squared plus 30 years, and Joseph lives 10 squared plus 10 years. And given the theology of this passage and the fact that Joseph has just rejected Adam's sin of trying to put himself in the place of God, I don't see how we can fail to see a comparison there. And then, even more obviously and interestingly, Joseph is the successor and climax of the patriarchs. Abraham lived 7 times 5 squared years. Isaac five times six squared years, Jacob three times seven squared years, and then you can add those numbers up. Joseph lives one times five squared plus six squared plus seven squared years. That's no accident, and it shows that Joseph pulls together the lives of the previous three, and the move from seven to five to three to one indicates him as the climax of this progression. What starts with Abraham ends with Jacob, and Jacob in the fourth generation then is bringing this story to an end. And it does end. Everything is great when we leave Genesis. We start in Exodus, then we find a new king arises who does not recognize Joseph. This is a hundred years from now. Well, it's not a hundred years from now. It's probably 20 or 30 years after Joseph dies, but They're in Egypt for a long time, living in prosperity, and treated as a priestly clan of people. Remember why we said that the Israelites were priests in Egypt? I know you can't remember these details. You come in here and I talk for 45 minutes a week, and then you go out and live a life. But I have to remind you of these things, you see. Remember that when Joseph parcels out the land, and everybody has to pay 20% to Pharaoh, the priests don't have to pay it, and the Israelites don't have to pay it. Just as when God parcels out the land of Canaan, the land of the priests is not under the same rules as the land for the people. So the Israelites in Goshen are treated as a priestly nation by the Egyptians. And as long as that's the case, and as long as the Israelites are faithful, they're blessed, and everything is great. Not going to go on forever, but Genesis ends, it is going on. Genesis ends with triumph and victory of the kingdom of God. And we have something here that's interesting. It's important for later parts of the Bible. Verse 23, Joseph saw from Ephraim sons to the third generation, which isn't very surprising considering how long he lived, and also the sons of Machir, sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Well, remember what Jacob has said to Joseph. Jacob says to Joseph in chapter 48, I am adopting your sons Ephraim and Manasseh, and now they're my sons. They're not yours anymore. So Ephraim and Manasseh are no longer Joseph's sons. They are Jacob's sons. Jacob now has 13 sons. Joseph has no sons. Officially, Joseph's sons are adopted by Jacob. They go between from Joseph's knees to Jacob's knees, and being on the knees is adoption. And then he says to Joseph, he says, any more children you have will be yours. Well, we don't know that Joseph had any more children, but then we read here that Machir, the sons of Machir, 
are adopted by Joseph. That's what being born on Joseph's knees means. <laughs> Imagine that literally, and it becomes grotesque and preposterous. It doesn't mean that these women gave birth, and somehow the baby came out, and the woman was sitting on Joseph's lap while she was giving birth, and the baby came out on his knees. That's preposterous. This is particular language that means adoption. It always means adoption. Just as Ruth's child was born on Naomi's knees so that he becomes Naomi's child. And just as Hagar's Ishmael was supposed to be born on Sarah's knees so that he would be Sarah's son, but that didn't work out because Hagar didn't let it happen. Well, that's what this means. It means now that Machir becomes a semi-independent tribe equal to Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim were almost equal to them. Manasseh and Ephraim were tribes of Israel. And Machir is kind of a tribe of Joseph, and it's different from Manasseh. That's why in the Bible you read about the half-tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh becomes two tribes, and that begins here. And I've just got references down here for you. You can look them up if you want. But if you look in those fascinating genealogies in First Chronicles 1-9, to passage that... You can't get to sleep at night. It'll put you there. In chapter 5, verses 23 to 26, you have the genealogy of Manasseh. And then in chapter 7, 14 to 17, you have the genealogy of Machir. It's treated as a separate tribe. And as you may remember, these two tribes had two different locations. Manasseh was located on this side of the Jordan, and Machir was located in Gilead, along with Reuben and Gad on the far side of Manasseh. These were really two different tribes with two different governments, Manasseh and Machir, which is part of Gilead. Gilead is this, Gad, Reuben, and Machir. And then the other Manasseh tribe is over here on this side. If you never knew that, now you know. And when you start reading the rest of the history of Israel, it becomes important the distinction between these two groups, they function differently. Which gives us 14 tribes totally. The Levites are scattered in Israel, but you've actually got now 14 instead of 12 tribes when you put it all together. So that's important. It's said here. And sometimes people wonder, how come the tribe of Manasseh divided in half? Well, divided in half because they were divided right from the beginning. Joseph adopts some of Manasseh's sons and they're separated right from the beginning, and they have a separate genealogy and history, and you can follow them down in the book of Numbers, in Judges, and other places. Yeah? Again, then the expression a number of times in the Bible, the 12 tribes of Israel, is this expression that encompasses all of these 14 tribes. Yeah, it, it has to be a figure of speech. There must be a technical term for a figure like that. But yeah, if you start counting them up, there are 14 tribes, 14 governments, and yet they're always called the 12 tribes because they're 12 sons of Jacob. Not one tribe has ever officially called the tribe of Joseph. No. Yeah, Joseph gets the double portion, and then, interestingly enough here, when Joseph complained that Manasseh was really the firstborn and he should have received the blessing, remember, Manasseh is firstborn. Got to remind everybody of this. Manasseh is firstborn. Ephraim is secondborn. But Jacob switched his hands. So he made Ephraim firstborn, and he made him preeminent, and he made Manasseh secondborn and subordinate. And Joseph complains about that. 
when Jacob does it in chapter 48. But Jacob says, verse 19, He will be people and he will be great. He will be enlarged. There will be a lot of people. Well, that's what's happened here. There's so many people in Manasseh that they are really two tribes. And, of course, that starts up with Joseph adopting Manasseh. But, yeah. Really counted as two tribes. They are two tribes, but in the numbering, they are looked at as being really Manasseh, right? Well, it depends. In numbers, they seem to be put together, but in Chronicles, they're listed separately with a bunch of other tribes in between them. They're separated from each other in Chronicles. The verses I've got down here. So it's kind of a both-and thing. It's like if you put Manasseh together and take out Levi because they didn't have a special geography, you got 12 tribes. If you add in Levi, you got 13. If you take the count that these were really two different governments here, you got 14. So <laughs> you can see why they would use the expression 12. 12 yeah, and I think because Israel himself as an individual had 12 sons, and so... No matter how they multiply out, they root in 12. Yeah. Now, I think you have kind of the same thing in the New Testament. When you've got 12 apostles, Judas falls away, and then Matthias comes in, but then Paul comes in. And who's Paul? He's a Benjamin, which is the last son, and you suddenly you seem to have 13. I mean, it's like we're playing with the number 12 here, and it's expanding a little bit, just like it seems to in Israel's history. Yeah, I guess you could, depending if you wanted to count up every last one that was ever counted on the rolls. Yeah. So, yeah, but that's a good question. I'm glad you raised it because we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel and that that's the right expression to use, but it's a little bit fuzzier when you start to actually look at the history. It's good to have that somewhat clear in your mind when you. Uh huh. Can we make, are you saying to Yeah. Yeah. Joseph, Manasseh, Machir. And then the sons of Machir. But Joseph adopts Machir's sons, which is to say adopts Machir. That group becomes a separate bunch. They're halfway sons of Jacob because Manasseh is adopted by Jacob. But they're also halfway sons of Joseph because Joseph takes them back. So it creates this ambiguity. But I wanted to make sure that I did justice to that because it does set up a lot of later Bible history that can be confusing to you if you don't remember what happened here. Then it says in verse 24, we have the ascension. We've already seen the ascension of Jacob. Jacob goes up into the land of promise. He goes up into heaven after his death and embalming. And Israel is embalmed in Egypt, and they're going to be embalmed there for 200 years then they will be disembalmed for 40 years. And we saw that last time. So I'll remind you of it. it. happens more than once. We had 40 days of rain, and then we had the flood. 40 days of rain take us down into a state of death, then the flood, and we had 40 days of the flood waters receding. And we have Israel, not Jacob. You see, the language is clear. It has a double meaning. Israel is embalmed for 40 days, and he's taken up to the land of Canaan. But Israel is embalmed, the nation, in Egypt for a period of time. Then they come out for 40 years. It takes 40 years to unwrap the Egyptian off of them. They kept wanting to go back to Egypt. Finally, they get disembalmed. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, 
He's baptized, 40 days with Satan, period of suffering on the earth, rejected by men, crucified, and then 40 days until his ascension. So this number 40, we say 40 is a period of transition, but it's not just a transition. It's a transition down into a state of suffering or death and a transition back up into a state of ascension. And I tried to call your attention to that last time, that this embalming of the people in Egypt is what's happening here. They're going to be preserved in a state somewhat close to death so that they can be resurrected later on. And now Joseph is going to be embalmed. And he says, don't take me back up into the promised land. I'm not going to ascend until you ascend. Jacob ascends before they do, just as Jesus did. Joseph says, I will wait until you ascend and we will all ascend together. Verse 24, Joseph says to his brothers, I am dying, but God will take account of you and he will bring you up. That's the word ascend. will cause you to ascend from this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're all going to be embalmed in one sense, and Joseph in particular is a sign of that. And Joseph says, I'll stay with you and I'll ascend when you do. And interesting, God has sworn that he would take them up to the land, and he has the sons of Israel swear that they will take him up to the land. So he says that they're supposed to be like God, but in the right sense. The things that God does are the things we're supposed to do, not trying to replace him, but just simply doing his work on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that's in the background here. Joseph has them do swear to do what God has done, and he says, bring my bones up, up. Again, that's the ascension word there, bring up my bones from here. Bones are what are there. And again, go back to Genesis. I mean, this bone stuff was right. What did Adam say when he saw Eve? He said, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. In fact, the first thing he says is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Bones are more basic. And then Joseph died 110 years old. We've already looked at that. And they embalmed him. So he's going to be embalmed. His embalming and being preserved there is a sign the nation is embalmed. His being brought up is when they're going to be brought up and resurrected. And they put him in a coffin in Egypt. Well, folks, the word coffin is the word ark, and it's used for the ark of the covenant. Exact same word. I mean, we have to imagine it couldn't be otherwise. Imagine you're coming out of Egypt, you get to Mount Sinai, and God makes this Ark of the Covenant, and you're traveling in the wilderness for 40 years, and you're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and right down in a parade, somewhere behind the Ark of the Covenant or ahead of it, are the sons of Ephraim or Manasseh or somebody carrying the Ark of Joseph. Same word. Somebody in those 38 years of wandering through the wilderness is going to say, hmm, I wonder if there's any conceptual link between these two things. And, of course, there is. The throne of God, which is the ark, is based on the death of Jesus Christ. And it's the sacrifice of the animals is what maintains the ark. Joseph's death and his preservation is there as a reminder to them that everything they experience is because somebody else died. And all of that is type and prophecy and gospel for them to think about as they live before we do. We see it all. We've got New Testament telling us all these things. Jesus dies and built on his death as a throne of God. And he rules us because he died for us. Here we've got two things. Joseph dies. He's in an ark. God comes and he rules positioned above an ark. 
And I think they were supposed to make that link, and that's why the language is used here. didn't have to say this. It could have said they just embalmed him and left him in Egypt. But it's very careful. Odd word is used that we cannot help but see as a link. Well, that ends our studies. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. and We are grateful that we live in a time when it is so much clearer for us. We can see the hints of it now in the book of Genesis in a clearer way than they could have. They could have seen some of these things and been aware that you were undoing Adam's sin here at the end of the story here in, in Joseph. But we can see so much more clearly how Jesus has done it. And we ask that you would draw near to us today by your Holy Spirit and that you would renew covenant with us and help us to live faithfully to you. If we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here are a few additional thoughts as kind of an appendix to our study of Joseph. Since the Joseph narrative starts off with the seven days of creation being recapitulated in chapter 37, and since the general structure is chiastic, does it work to consider that possibly there is some kind of decreation, or at least a thematic working out of the seven days backwards at the end of the Joseph narrative? And I think there is, in a general kind of a way, and these final remarks here are just to explicate that just a little bit. We'll use the sections that seem to fit here at the end of the narrative. And the last part of the narrative is chapter 50, verses 22 to 26, which tells us about Joseph's life and his death and his embalming. And that is the end of the book. Joseph, I say here, has been the light of the world, a light to the world and to his brothers, and he dies and he's embalmed. It's as if the light is put out. And if we look back at the beginning of this narrative in chapter 37, verse 2, where we read that Joseph brought back a bad report, an evil report about his brothers to their father, that was where we saw Joseph acting as a light to tell the truth, putting light on something uh, that they wanted to keep in darkness. Well, now, here at the end of the narrative, where that showed us Joseph appearing on the scene, and shining light, here he dies, and it's as if the light is now going out and will be embalmed for a while so that there can be a new creation in the book of Exodus. So I do think there's a general correspondence there, but let's see if we can do more. The second thing that happened in the Joseph story back in chapter 37, we associated with the firmament, and that was the tunic, the full-length tunic or robe that... Israel had made for Joseph and put on him, and that garment, we said at the time, separated Joseph from his brothers. It was a firmament between him and them, and he was on the royal side of the firmament, and they were on the unroyal side. He's the one preferred by his father. They are the ones kept at a distance. This has been the barrier that was set up right away on the second day event in the narrative, and that continues to be a problem down to the end. There have been some stages of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, but the climax of that reconciliation is in chapter 50, verses 15 to 21, which is the penultimate section of the narrative. The brothers are afraid. They go and they report what the father had said before he died, before Jacob died, and they are reconciled more fully than ever before. 
So I think this fullness of reconciliation after the death of Jacob, Jacob was the one who had instituted this firmament by putting on the robe. It's as if the death of Jacob now is the final act in removing this firmament between the two of them, and they're reconciled. So we seem to have a removal, thematically speaking, a removal of this firmament just before the light is put out. So there does seem to be a progressive working back out of things that were set up at the beginning, which bear a faint, well, not too faint, analogy to the way the book itself starts off in Genesis chapter 1, as if we're moving back out, not only of the Joseph narrative, but of the whole book of Genesis. The third day theme, back in chapter 37, was very easy. Joseph has a dream about binding sheaves in the field, and then his next dream is about the sun, moon, and stars. That's very easy to associate with the third and fourth days of creation. In fact, it's inescapable. Well, do we have grain language, sun, moon, and star language, or any type of equivalent implication as we move back out of the story? Well, it appears that possibly we do, and possibly that we're intended to, in Genesis 49:29 to 50, verse 14, which is a section, we have the death and embalming of Jacob, or Israel, as he's called here for the most part, because it's the whole nation that's being embalmed. And in the process of it, we have a tension called, in chapter 50, verse 10, to the threshing floor at Atad. And, in fact, it's repeated again in verse 11. A mourning at a threshing floor. It's as if the grain made on the third day is now returning to the soil. It's as if Jacob himself is analogous to this wheat and his death. Everything is going back into the soil to wait to spring up again later. He is being planted. Israel is, the nation is being planted in the earth, being embalmed for a future resurrection. But maybe there's even a hint here of plants returning to the soil and the earth going back to the way it was when the third day began. Not in any complete sense, only in a very general, elusive sense. For the rest, I don't think we have reversals and decreations, but I think we do have parallel themes. As I just mentioned, the fourth day event in Genesis 37 is the vision or dream of the sun, moon, and stars. And I think we can very readily link this with the blessings and judgments on the sons of Jacob as they are recorded in Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 to 28, which is the fourth from the end section of the narrative. Of course, there's nothing about stars here, at least not directly so. But we do know that Israel is positioned in the heavenlies, that these people are now organized in 12 groups, that later on the four preeminent tribes will be associated with the four major constellations in the sky, the eagle, the ox, the lion, and the man pouring out water, who is Reuben, who is here called unstable, who is here called a fountain of water, as we saw, one who bubbles over with water, but then defiled that gift. So, again, generally an allusion to rulers and governors, and the many pictures of government and warfare and rule in this passage, links it with the fourth day and links it with the sun, moon, and stars. And perhaps there's an idea of something being undone here within the Joseph story, because Joseph saw all these other brothers bowing down to him. But the promises here undo that. 
Judah will be a royal tribe. Benjamin will be a royal tribe. Of course, Benjamin wasn't born when Joseph had that dream. But each of the tribes will have its own honor and dignity, and they will not be bowing down to Joseph. Joseph will not be the preeminent royal tribe. Judah will. So it's as if that event is being undone within the narrative. We come then to the fifth day in Genesis 37, which, as so often is the case, the fifth day is sort of a catch-all, and yet there's often an association with swarms or groups or gatherings or clouds. And here, as we saw way back when, we find Jacob sending Joseph to look for the flocks. And the, the flock, this first time any type of group like that has been mentioned, could well associate with the fifth day. That would match, chiastically, the blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh, which at least in part involves great multitudes from Manasseh and great rule and strength for Ephraim, which I've said here might even link with the great sea creatures. We can almost see again something of an oppositional reversal in these, not an undoing of the events of Creation Week. But originally, Jacob doesn't know exactly how the flocks are doing. He sends Joseph to look after them. But here in this passage, he knows exactly how the flocks are going to do and predicts what they will do in the future, these additional flocks that will come from these new additional sons. The sixth day event in Genesis chapter 37, if we can recall, is that Joseph was wandering about in the field, and a man appears to him and asks him what he's looking for, and the man tells him how to go and find his brothers. The man highlighted here. Well, in chapters 46 to 47, which is the next section back, we find a lot of Garden of Eden motifs here. The whole story is how they move into the land of Goshen and how they are taken and placed into that pleasant place and taken care of there. That's the overall narrative. But it's interesting that within that narrative, in chapter 46, verse 28, Joseph sent Judah before him to point out the way to Goshen. So just as a man points the way for Joseph to join his brothers in chapter 37, so here a man points the way for all the brothers in the clan to come and join Joseph. Again, there is something of a reversal or an inversion of the early events as we step through these days. And then finally, Sabbath judgment. And we saw the seventh event was the Sabbath and the fall of man where the brothers attacked Joseph and sell him into slavery at the end of chapter 37. And that's where the narrative goes, and that's the important part. Well, chapter 43 to 45 is the longest section in the Joseph narrative, and it's the story of the full reconciliation from this event. As I said, later on, the garment itself has to be taken away for a full embrace, so to speak. But the garment was put up, that's taken down at the end, symbolically speaking, in this last reconciliation. But the major conflict came when they attacked Joseph, and the major reconciliation is when Joseph puts them through the same kind of experience that he went through. They are thrown into pits. Benjamin is threatened with slavery. They are attacked. And, of course, Jacob himself is said in this narrative to undergo death and resurrection. So all the Sabbath themes are here. And it does appear, then, that there is a chiastic structure in the narrative that the rather brief notices in chapter 37 are then expanded and reversed 
in the seven last sections of the narrative. Well, this brings us to another central section then, another way to see a different central section, different from the original chiasm that we proposed back on page 157. I think that chiasm is still correct. The center of the chiasm on page 157 is Reuben's offering his sons, which is not effective, and then Judah offers himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for Benjamin should Benjamin go in trouble. And I think that is the turning point in the Joseph-Judah narrative, which after all is the narrative of the sons of Jacob and not just Joseph per se. Well, this other way of doing it puts Joseph in prison at the center. Judah's deception in chapter 38 is matched by the brother's deception in chapter 42. And these are complete literary units. Chapter 38 is a sealed literary unit in chapter 41 is as well. Chapter 42 is. And so are 39, 40, and 41. If anything, this chiasm is simpler and more obvious than the one that I provided at the beginning and simpler and more obvious than the one that David Dorsey provides. We have seven days at the beginning. We have five sections here, each of which is exactly one chapter long. And each chapter is a completely enclosed literary unit. And then we have seven sections that move us back out of the seven days. So Judah being deceived in chapter 38 is matched by Jacob's deception of the brothers. And there's also various objects that are involved in deception and coming to a realization. Although in chapter 38 everything is resolved, and in chapter 42 the resolution does not happen. It has to come later. In chapter 39, Joseph becomes great in an Egyptian house, Potiphar, and in chapter 41 he becomes great in the Egyptian house, the house of Pharaoh. And in the center, Joseph is in prison. He bears witness while he is in this death situation. And so Joseph's imprisonment and his death and resurrection out of that situation becomes the center of the narrative when it's considered this way. And I think that this can be quite useful as a way of understanding the passage. Well, that concludes the additional remarks that I was going to make on the book and on the story of Joseph. And I hope that this will be helpful to you as you study it and look through it. And I think you'll see that this literary structure is there and that it shows us God winding everything back down at the end of Genesis. On the one hand, Genesis ends with this glorious picture of a converted world, which is a type and a prophecy of the kingdom of God that's going to come and cover the earth. On the other hand, it has this hint of running backwards and running back down through the creation, decreating, as it were, embalming the world so that it can be made again and come to life again in a new and fuller way when we get to the book of Exodus. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.